Welcome to Fast Company Digest, essential stories from tech, design, impact, and work life, narrated by Noah App. I'm Fast Company Deputy Editor and host of the New Way We Work podcast, Kathleen Davis. Here are this week's stories. First, from our impact section, we take a look at the $1.2 billion plants being built in Texas and Louisiana. They will be the nation's first structures built to vacuum carbon dioxide pollution from the sky. Narrated by Noah. Listen to more of the world's best journalism on the Noah app or at newsoveraudio.com. For Noah, this is Adrian Walker reading from Fast Company. We're on the 11th of August, 2023. Emily Price writes The U.S. is investing $1.2 billion to fight climate change with vacuums that suck carbon from the sky. The Biden administration announced on the 11th of August that it will invest $1.2 billion to build the nation's first commercial-sized plants to vacuum carbon dioxide pollution from the sky and help make a dent in the 2.5 trillion metric tons, and counting, of carbon dioxide that humans have put into the atmosphere, which is contributing to climate change. The two plants will be built in Kleberg County, Texas, and Calcasieu Parish on the coast of Louisiana. The plants are being built in partnership with oil company Occidental Petroleum, which is building the Texas plant, and Battelle Memorial Institute, a nonprofit research organization, which is building the Louisiana location. According to the New York Times, the companies will equally split the cost of building the facilities with the government. Money for the project comes from the 2021 Bipartisan Infrastructure Deal, which included $3.5 billion dollars to fund four of the air capture plants. These are the first two of those plants. The project is similar to a pilot program already underway in Iceland. In 2021, a startup called Climeworks opened the plant, which pulls in outside air and filters it, capturing the CO2 so it can be pumped underground, where it is turned into stone. The startup first began using a version of the technology in Switzerland in 2017. It has previously sold the CO2 to a bottling plant where it was used to make sparkling water. The Iceland plant was the first of its kind to eliminate carbon dioxide permanently. There are also a number of other startups working on technologies to help remove carbon from the atmosphere, from robotic seaweed arms to kiln-heated limestone. The process of vacuuming carbon from the air is an expensive one. In 2019, when the Iceland plant was being built, Executives expected the cost to be between $500 and $600 per ton of carbon. There's hope, with the U.S. government's investment in the technology, that the price of the process can ultimately be lowered. Some environmental activists caution against relying solely on carbon capture plants to solve the climate crisis. As the Times article notes, former Vice President Al Gore recently called the technology a moral hazard, because he argues that it gives fossil fuel producers license to continue to produce more oil and gas and to continue to pollute the environment. Given the cost of the process, he thinks it would be more advantageous to prevent the carbon emissions in the first place, rather than clean them up after the fact. Others, however, believe the technology is critical in the fight against climate change. So far, 30 similar carbon capture plants have been commissioned to be built worldwide, but the Texas and Louisiana plants would be the largest facilities in the world. 
the Department of Energy estimates that the two plants together will be capable of removing more than 2 million metric tons of CO2 from the atmosphere each year, the equivalent of taking 500,000 gas-powered cars off the road. No official date has been announced for when the plants will be operational. You are listening to Fast Company, where Emily Price writes, The U.S. is investing $1.2 billion to fight climate change with vacuums that suck carbon from the sky. This article was published on the 11th of August, 2023, and was read by Adrian Walker for NOAA. Next, co-design writer Mark Wilson breaks down exactly how the customer experience at Disney World has deteriorated with the pandemic recovery and extreme temperatures. For NOAA, this is Sam Scholl reading from Fast Company, where on the 14th of August, 2023, Mark Wilson writes, Disney World is hell. My first steps inside the Magic Kingdom were not so magical. Lined up with thousands of anxious parkgoers behind us, my family of four is forced to hand over our biometrics to enter. Our photos are taken and our fingerprints are scanned. I find myself wondering if the cast member, Disney's term for its employees, manning our turnstile, who has already admonished my five-year-old for putting her finger down at the exact time she was told to, is going to pull out a Mickey-eared swab to wipe our cheeks for DNA next. Passing the gates, I gaze upon the Magic Kingdom's 107 acres of concreted swamp that will push this record-breaking July heat index to well above 100 degrees in a few hours. But I'm still young and naive. The day has yet to break me. And I eagerly hop into the first store I see to purchase a $50 tiara for my daughter. Disney's tacit promise is that there is no problem too great to buy your way out of. It's a promise it's almost, but not quite, able to keep. I signed up for a Disney World trip, knowing full well that I was going to donate half my 401k to CEO Bob Iger's second yacht. What I didn't expect? was that so much about Disney's park experience is just plain miserable, that a world built for wonder, operated by a company that made nearly $30 billion in 2022 and $2.2 billion last quarter on parks alone, would so often feel like it resented my presence. Yes, rides like Tron Lightsicle Run and Rise of the Resistance are wondrous in a way only Disney Imagineers can dream up. And Pirates of the Caribbean is still a joy. But in an era of global warming, Disney is dangerously sweltering during the summer. And its 1960s infrastructure does little to mitigate this. Its digital app, used for everything from your room key to skipping long lines, can easily go awry. And requires parents to start each day with a trauma akin to buying Taylor Swift tickets. And it's all made worse by the fact that Disney is increasingly a ghost town, staffed with fewer employees to make moments magical, many of whom, quite understandably, don't seem to be so happy working there in the first place. It's definitely become very, very difficult to go to Disney World, which is why we do what we do, says A.J. Wolf, who owns two popular Disney blogs, All Ears and Disney Food Blog. We're there every single day figuring out the problems and making our mistakes so people don't have to make mistakes. But taking a trip shouldn't be this hard, especially given that Disney has unprecedented control over customer experience, 
having architected its cities, its hotels, and its app. As a three-day budget trip to Disney costs a family of four $4,500, of course its customers have the right to expect magic. While Disney declined to provide an interview for this story, I connected with amusement park experts to discuss what could be going wrong at Disney World, and I was actually disappointed to learn that it's not just me. The Disney Parks experience is going downhill. Heat is a concern for the entire amusement park industry, according to Dennis Spiegel, founder and CEO of International Theme Park Services. He has spent the past 50 years working and consulting in this space. Disney World is a small city, but after all, built to withstand the footfalls of 58 million people a year. That's 28% more people than visit New York's Central Park annually. It requires industrial-strength walkways. Yet with its miles of concrete and blacktop, it's vulnerable to all of the same urban heat island effects as anywhere else. That heat is a real business challenge for Disney. Attendance has reportedly been down in 2023, which is speculated to be due partially to temperatures and partially to Florida politics. Spiegel recalls a stint in the 90s when temperatures hit 95 across the southwest for two weeks, and people just stopped going to parks. It was too damn hot. Now those temperatures aren't so rare. He says that the industry's ever-increasing push of Halloween as a marquee event of the year is in part a response to our warming climate. Glad Keith, an assistant professor at the University of Arizona, who specializes in urban heat, studied satellite imagery of Disney World during our conversation. He notes that while there are a few strategic parts of greenery in and around the parks, and that Disney has painted the roofs of its buildings like colors to mitigate heat, there is still a high concentration of materials known to retain warmth, namely concrete and asphalt, topped with all sorts of equipment for stores, rides, and refreshments that also generate heat. He says Disney's large blacktop parking lot outside the park likely contributes to visitor discomfort as well. Keith recalls taking his two children to Disney World during the summer. It was probably 80 degrees, but even being from Tucson, 80 degrees at Disneyland can be uncomfortable if you're standing in lines all day. What was surprising to me wasn't that Disney World was scorching or lacking much greenery, but that Disney offers such minimal shade for its guests across its built environment. If you aren't in line or in a store, you're likely exposed. Around noon, I saw legions of people in Frontierland scurrying like palmetto bugs to scant trips of shade to survive. I guess you could move in 50 misters to cool people down, Spiegel muses, but you can't plant 100 elm trees overnight. Wolf of All Ears and Disney Food Blog says that heat has always been an issue in the parks. Orlando in the summer has never been cool, after all, but notes it's one of the chief issues her readers need to plan for, and is a huge, huge problem for parkgoers. We see people go down every day, Wolf says. We've had team members who've had kids get dehydrated and pass out. Aside from a lack of shade or green space, another issue is that there is very little free water available at Disney's parks, which have an exclusive contract with Coca-Cola for beverages. Whereas Universal Studios allows customers to hand over their refillable water bottles at all food purveyors to be topped off, Disney's quick-service restaurants, where you order at the counter, 
will provide only tiny cups of ice water for free, meaning trying to hydrate my family became a juggle of shame and a guilt-ridden waste of packaging. The parks are installing refillable water stations like those at airports and schools, but there are still very few. As of the time of this writing, Disney Food Blog's reporters spotted only three in the Magic Kingdom, and numbers were the same at Epcot and Hollywood Studios. That's nine water stations across three parks visited by hundreds of millions of people annually. Disney declined to comment on the state of drinking water at its parks, but the Monday after we reached out, we learned it had added several temporary installations with coolers and pre-filled cups. If there has been one thing that Disney has largely fixed over the past decade, it involves what is the biggest complaint of amusement parks, lines. While they still exist, people willing to spend an extra $15 to $35 per day can get a service called Genie Plus, which allows you to pick your next desired ride, wait in a virtual line, and mosey up to a much shorter line at an appointed time. Disney offers similar perks free of charge for people with varying disabilities, making amusement park waits much more accessible. At first glance, Genie Plus is a small miracle, especially if you ignore that the service used to be provided at no cost. But in practice, it's part of what seems to be an intentionally convoluted booking system that makes a day at the parks innately stressful, pulling one's attention from the real world to the digital one. First off, Genie Plus is sold in limited quantities. While you book a trip months in advance, to get Genie Plus, you need to sign into the My Disney Experience app starting at midnight on the day of your visit to try to buy it. Then at 7 a.m. that morning to book rides. And some ride reservations can only be booked when you're physically through security into the park. This means the start of your day lacks any sense of security. Genie Plus is also not the only line-skipping service, as it doesn't cover all attractions in the park. The app sells individual passes for access to shorter lightning lanes for some rides, like Tron, and offers free but limited virtual queues for other rides. The cognitive load just from figuring out how to interact with the park is absurdly confusing and exacerbated by Disney's over-eager branding of its microservices like Disney Magic Mobile. Wolf notes that before the pandemic, Disney allowed you to sign up for Genie Plus, then called FastPass Plus, and make restaurant reservations at the time of booking, months out from your trip. You could pick your rides 60 days in advance. That was overwhelming to some guests, she says, so Disney went the opposite direction. Now they're hearing guests say, we wish we didn't have to stare at our phones all day, she says. Indeed, because as soon as you finish with one ride, you'll need to book the next one compare virtual wait times, and cross-reference a map of the park. What could be easily optimized by a Disney algorithm becomes a part-time job for all park-goers, and one that destroys the nature of casual discovery. I'd also be remiss not to mention, scope out any message board, and you'll see that Disney World's own fan base contends that many of the posted wait times are inaccurate, and speculates that they are used to control consumer flow and perhaps even make line-slipping passes look more necessary than they sometimes are. These are the sorts of conspiracy theories born from mass-tracked inaccuracy. One Disney expert believes that weights are overestimated 75% of the time. But aside from line management, I found my Disney Experience app 
the tool you use for everything from opening your hotel door to ordering food for pickup to entering the parks, to be atrociously designed and incredibly buggy. On the surface, the simplest of tasks can be buried two or three menus deep. The app often prioritizes advertisements selling you more tickets rather than providing the information you need in the moment. Restaurants load inconsistently, making it hard to find and order food. And many venues strong-arm you to order via the app, lest you wait in a severely understaffed line. For some reason, my hotel key didn't sync to my account. For some other reason, scanning tickets to enter the park and hop on rides via Apple Wallet created an error that stopped my family in our tracks again and again, requiring managers to come by with an administrative tablet while people behind us grew angry. At one point, an employee suggested we give up on the apps and just try RFID cards that Disney could supply, like you use to open hotel doors, because app-based tickets had problems all the time. Edge cases happen, of course, and suffice to say I was unlucky. But even when it works, Disney's app pales in comparison to an app like the one Starbucks has built, which allows efficient payments, ordering, wayfinding, and rewards, and still manages to upsell you along the way. As such, when I think about my most recent trip to Starbucks, I think about my coffee order. And when I think about my most recent trip to Disney, I think about so much that failed me in that app. Disney's Orlando Parks employ a small army of staff. 77,000 cast members handle everything from making Mickey waffles to dancing in parades. Their wages start at $15 per hour, going up to $18 per hour later in 2023. Surviving on that kind of pay is hard, leading some employees to skip meals and sleep in their cars. This is happening as they face an increasingly entitled visitor base that's paying ever higher prices for the experience. What it seemingly adds up to is something I was reluctant to even voice to Disney experts. Was it me? Or were a lot of the employees unapologetic, even rude at times? Certainly some, especially those I met who had been at Disney for decades, were extremely friendly and helpful. Others were most certainly not. Yet, both Spiegel and Wolf know exactly what I'm talking about, and Wolf notes it's been a frequent guest complaint for the past few years. One thing that's impacted our industry dramatically is wages and labor shortage. Whether you're Disney, Universal, SeaWorld, or Six Flags, no one has enough employees, says Spiegel, who points out that the current crop of employees in amusement parks came up during COVID-19, when he says workers had more incentive to walk away from a job, and training became more lax in the interest of retention. One former Disney employee who wants to remain anonymous shared how their experience changed before and after the height of the pandemic with an onboarding experience called Traditions. This day-long initiation out of Disney University, which is located in close proximity to the parks behind the Magic Kingdom, is an important part of welcoming new cast members to the team and energizing them to create Disney magic. Even the little things felt like a bigger deal in 2020. Like Mickey came and handed each person their name tag. Our ears were in a box, so it was a big surprise to open the box and see them. And in general, I remember watching more videos about cast members who worked there for a long time, who moved their way up the company. The whole thing was made to make you feel like you were a part of something big and important, the source recalls. Then in 2022, Mickey popped in to wave to everyone, but he did not stay. 
The ears were just sitting on our chairs. This is just a silly little nitpicky thing, I know. And traditions was only a half-day thing. There were still some of the same videos and stuff from pre-pandemic, but all the magic was kind of stripped away and it felt more like, you are an employee, here are the rules. A Disney spokesperson told Fast Company that it still hosts full-day traditions. Training and staffing may be part of the current issues with employees at Disney, but notably these workers have also gone through a lot since 2020, given that the parks operate in a public health contentious, conservative state. Cast members were treated abysmally by guests during COVID. Guests were required to wear masks, and we heard about issues every single day of cast members reduced to tears because guests were so terrible about it, says Wolf, noting that this psychological trauma was what she believed to be the leading cause of issues with cast members today. Yet, the attitude of the employees is only one aspect of the experience they create for visitors. At times, the parks felt devoid of so many of the characters I recall walking around in costume when I was younger. Disney has a name for this important touch, streetmosphere. It's the atmosphere that's created by actors, musicians, and other performers that helps transform acres of concrete and carnival rides into something more special. Wolf says that the streetmosphere was a COVID casualty, and it hasn't recovered. Most of those cast members did not come back. They didn't choose not to come back. Disney didn't bring Streetmosphere back, she says. All the interactive stuff, like a mayor talking to people on Main Street USA, that entertainment has not returned. And yet, that's the sort of entertainment that Disney is known for, and that other brands just can't match. It's in effect made worse by the fact that it's very rare to see characters roaming around in Disney World. A chance encounter with Mickey or Ariel is basically unheard of, though Disneyland in California has always had its characters walk around more regularly. Instead, Disney sequesters characters to special brunches and other photo ops for an extra cost, and the lines for these pictures are some of the longest in the park. We're seeing Disney maximize revenue while minimizing bodies, says Wolf noting how smaller casts visited by fewer park-goers can still drive profits. An event like Mickey's Scary Party goes so far as to feature specialty characters you can't find anywhere else. She suggests it's like Disney saying, we're not going to give them to you for free in the parks. You need to pay another $200 for this ticketed event. Between heat, platforms, and staffing, it's difficult to encapsulate all of these distinct problems and how they can snowball into what can be a very trying experience for guests hoping to have a once-in-a-lifetime trip. It's easy to argue that Disney can't do better. It has tens of millions of people to please, after all. But Disney is a rare company that has complete control of its physical and digital spaces. You won't find another operation in the U.S. that can guide every touchpoint of a consumer experience like Disney can. From choosing the sheets you wake up on, to providing the transportation to the park, to launching you on laser bike through the sky at mind-numbing speed. Plus, it has some of the most beloved characters in cinematic history to keep you entertained along the way. My family still has some wonderful memories from our visit to Disney World. But I'll be honest, we would have made wonderful memories on any trip. Despite all of its claims, Disney does not own a monopoly on magic. You were listening to Fast Company. 
where Mark Wilson writes, Disney World is hell. This article was published on the 14th of August, 2023, and was read by Sam Scholl for NOAA.